I know a place where we can go to lay the troubles down, eating your soul. I know a place where mercy flows. Take the stains, make you whiter than snow. Like a tide, it is rising up deep inside a current that moves and makes you come alive. Living water that brings the dead to life. Oh, oh, oh. we're going down to the river, down to the river, down to the river to pray. Yeah, yeah. Let's get washed by the water, washed by the water, and rise up in amazing grace. Let's go down, down, down to the river. Let's go down, down, down to the river. I've seen it move in my own life. Took me from dusty roads into paradise. All of my dirt, all of my shame, drowned in the streams that have made me born again. Like a tide, it is rising up deep inside a current that moves and makes you come alive. Living water that brings the dead to life. Oh, oh, oh. we're going down to the river, down to the river, down to the river to pray. Yeah, yeah. Let's get washed by the water, washed by the water. It's rise up in amazing grace. Let's go down, down, down.
an everlasting stream. Your river carries me home. Let it flow, let it flow. Open the heavens. Come, living water. All my fountains are in you. Be strong like a river. Your love is running through all my something to say before we do it so maybe I do like it secretly um okay um in the bridge of this song um he says or will say um to the thief and to the doubter to the hero and the coward to the prisoner and the soldier to the young and to the older and it's a really really good reminder that Jesus died for everybody and it doesn't matter if you wear a mask or if you don't wear a mask or if you stayed home, or if you went out to dinner, or any other things that are relevant today, Jesus died for all of us, and he loves all of us the same. So let's sing it.
with nothing left to give Oh, the shape that we were in And just when all hope seemed lost Love opened the door for us He said, come to the table And these thieves, there's no one unwelcome here. And that sin and shame that you brought with you, you can leave it at the door and let mercy draw you near. And come to the table, come join the sinners. come to the time in our service for communion. Uh, we have stations set up on both sides and in the back of the auditorium. So anytime during this next song, 
feel free to take communion with your family, your friends, or even by yourself. All we ask is that you remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us when he died on the cross for our sins. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, just want to thank you for bringing us all together here this morning so that we can hear Corey's message and hear what he hear his words about you. Um, Father, I just ask that you guide our lives and grant us patience and peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Hey, good morning. Let me uh, welcome you again to Real Life and those of you joining us online. We've come to a point in our service where we take a moment out to continue to worship God by giving back to him a portion of what he's given. And I want to read a little bit from um, uh, 2 Chronicles this morning. So the Jewish people had gone through a really difficult time. The northern tribes had separated from the southern tribes. Judah and uh, the city of Jerusalem were in the southern part, and, um, and the northern tribes were made up of the rest of the tribes. And that's where, if you read in the Old Testament, it gets a little confusing because you have Judah, and then you have Israel. That's how they separated them. Hezekiah then, after a long string of kings that forgot God and didn't follow God the way David and Solomon had done, Hezekiah becomes king, and he begins to follow God, and he reopens the temple. Um, they find uh, the, the law of God. They begin to read that and share that with the people, and they're getting ready to open the temple back up, and they called the people to worship. They called them to come and to worship God, to come to the temple and to bring their offerings, and here's what it says. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. The people of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks and a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God, and they piled them in, in heaps. Now, as a preacher, I, I like that one. <laughs> I like the idea of us bringing our offering and piling it in heaps. But that doesn't really happen today, right? We give differently today than they did in the Bible. But the point that I think is important here to catch is that the people gave what they had and what was important to them. Remember that um, the people, it's an agrarian society, right? And so they, um, they, they raised crops and they had uh, herds and flocks of animals. And that was what was important to them. That was their currency. That was what they had to live on for the rest of the year. And yet they brought those things to God. Today, most of us aren't dependent on what we grow in the garden or uh, what kind of uh, flocks or herds that we have. All of those things we might have, but we trade them for money. So what we have is important, and, um, and what's important to us is then important to God. And so we give, first of all, from what we have. I love that about God, that he doesn't expect us to give what we don't have, but he does expect us to give from what we do have. And secondly, that we're to bring things that are important to us. And so today, we just want to give you the opportunity to give to God from what you have and from those things that are important to you. And to do that with, as the Bible says, a cheerful heart, because we're giving to God. We're giving that to God because of who he is, this incredible God who loves us and cares for us and is with us all the time. I read this last week, um, this idea that we talk about in the Old Testament, the New Testament, they talk about uh, God being in heaven. And, and what a huge concept that is, this idea of heaven. Like we look up in the sky. In fact, last night I was sitting on the back porch. I was looking up at the stars, uh, just kind of praying about today and about all of you who are going to be here and, and thinking about this concept of heaven and how huge the idea of heaven is. And yet over and over, Scripture tells us that God hears from heaven. 
No matter how big that is, he hears our voices and he's attentive to us. And so we give to God because of all he's given to us and that he hears even our smallest prayers. You can give today on your mobile device or your computer. Go to reallifecc.us. Click on the orange round give button in the bottom right-hand corner. You can do that um, securely. And uh, if you do that regularly, make sure you're signed in, set up an account, keep track of that. And then all that information will be pulled up every time that you give. If you're joining us online, you can just click on the blue give button in the chat window and uh, you can give uh, the same way uh, through those giving flows just from a different color button. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and for giving so much to us. Thank you for uh, just this idea that you hear us from your throne in heaven where you watch over everything. In fact, your word says that, that a sparrow doesn't fall from a tree without you noticing it. And you love us so much more. And so, God, we just, we just thank you today for all that you have given us and the way that you watch over us and care for us. Um, and, and so, God, we give today back to you a portion of what you've given to us. And we do that, um, God, happily and cheerfully and with joy in our hearts because we're helping uh, you, we're helping this church together help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like him every day. So thanks for that, God, and be with us the rest of the service in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had a, a bit of a revelation um, this week, and, and it's this, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And if you're a church person, you're maybe like, well, duh, preacher, like I knew that a long time ago. But we talk about joy as though um, we have to get joy, right, somehow, that we go after joy or that things happen in our life that cause us to be joyful, and yet it occurred to me that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And that's, this is what that means. Joy is developed in us. It isn't gained by us. You catch that distinction? It's developed in us by the Spirit's work in our lives. It isn't gained by us by the things that we get or the way that we go after we pray enough or if we, you know, whatever. Like, like it, it comes as a spiritual development in our lives. It's not something that we work for on the outside and we gain. And that was kind of a big revelation to me. And it's something I think we need to consider today as we're talking in this series about how to be full of joy and to live a generous and um, content life. We need to understand how to live a life of joy. And if joy comes from the Spirit's work in our lives, then we need to understand what that looks like. And so I want to start with this uh, big question this morning. In fact, um, I'm going to ask you this question, and I want you to write down your answer 
to this question. So if you don't have a pen or paper or something, uh, get out your phone. You've got a notes app on your phone if you have a cool iPhone. And maybe if you have an uncool Android, you might have a notes app on there as well. Thank you. Uh, and so you can uh, join us. And even if you're joining us at home, pull out your phone or a uh, slip of paper, or whatever, write down the answer to this question. What would it take to make me feel joyful? Right now, <laughs> what would it take to make me feel joyful? And in fact, I, I, I want you to do that. Um, and if you're going to use your phones, you can go to reallifecc.us, click on the My Message Notes link. And uh, right there, there's an opportunity. You'll find that question in the uh, webpage there, and you can click on Add Note, and you can add it right there, and then email yourselves the note uh, after the service, but take a few seconds more to write down your answer. What would it take to make me feel joyful? I think typically most of us expect to feel joy or feel joyful when life is going well, right? If you've got kids, if the kids are happy, you might feel joyful, um, if I'm climbing the corporate ladder, if my spouse is the person that I dreamed they would be before we got married, I might feel joyful. If my bank account is more of a help than a hindrance to the lifestyle that I've chosen, right, I might feel uh, joy. Basically, most people expect to feel joyful when everything is going the way that they want them to. So when life is going the way I want, when things are happening on my timetable and the way that I dreamed they would be, then I expect to feel joy. But, but that idea that joy can be attained from just the things that happen in our life is completely dependent on whether or not my hopes and dreams are being achieved. And so, Having joy in our lives then becomes completely dependent on me, how I feel about how life is going, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Things are happening the way I want them to or they're not. And so we get this concept of joy that joy happens to us or comes to us based on exterior factors, things that are happening in our life oftentimes that we have no real control over. We base our joy on those things. Now, if that were the case, if we got joy, we received joy, we kind of lived in joy based on the things that were happening around us in our lives or whether our dreams were coming true or life goals were being met, if that were the case, those with the most stuff, those with the best jobs, um, those with the most attractive or attentive spouse, or with the most well-behaved children, they would be the most joyful, right? If joy is, is gained by external things, then those people who had the greatest external things happening to them would be the most joyful. But that's not the case. In fact, in most cases, I think, as we look around the world and we look at those people who we think have kind of made it in life, when we look at them, we think they've got all of the things in their life that I think I need in my life in order to have joy, and yet in their lives, they are often miserable. 
They've reached the top, right? They're famous. They have lots of money. There's lots of things going on. Everything is right. They got the four or five or six or 12 car garage. They've got all of that stuff and one can get anything they want, buy anything they want. And yet many of those people are not the most joyful people. They're the most miserable people. And, and they might look good from the outside, right? When they're on camera or uh, whatever, it, it looks like everything is perfect in their life. But when they get home, when they take off that happy face, there's no joy. But if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, that means that lasting joy or, or being in a state of continual joy can't be achieved through the pursuit of anything other than the Spirit's work in our lives. Just think about that for a moment. If it's true that lasting joy, continual joy in our lives is a fruit of the Spirit, then joy can't be attained by chasing anything except the Spirit's work or presence in our lives. And I think that's a huge shift in our understanding of joy, what joy means. That Look, if you want to experience joy in your life, you're going to have to pursue the Spirit's presence in your life. The challenge with pursuing the Spirit's presence in your life is that the Spirit, okay, God's Spirit that Jesus promised when he left this earth, right, told the disciples, if I go, I'll send another counselor who will be with you and in you and will lead you and guide you to all truth. The Spirit's presence in our lives is at odd with the flesh, so if you're, if you're new to church, maybe you're joining us online, here's the difference. God's Spirit is at work in us. God's Spirit leads us to the things that are closest to the heart of God, namely loving God and, and, and loving others. And the Bible talks about this idea that, that anything that's not being led by the Spirit, leading us to love God or to love others, are things of the flesh. It's like worldly things, earthly things, um, uh, stuff. In our lives. And so those two things, what the Spirit is doing in us and what the world is doing around us or expecting of us, those are two different things and they're at odds in our lives. What the Spirit desires for us is not what we would typically desire for ourselves. And so if we're going to pursue joy, then we've got to reframe how we attain joy. And we've got to redefine what actually brings lasting joy in our lives. And so we look to Paul. We know more about Paul's struggles, challenges, and pain than any other apostle in the Bible. We know how many times he was involved in uh, shipwreck. Yes, it was more than once, if you can um, believe that. We know how many times that he was beaten. We know how many times he was even stoned and left for dead, like he was outside the city of Lystra. Yet Paul is the one who writes this letter to the church in Philippi. It's a, it's a loving and intimate letter that he shares with the people of this church that he planted in the home of Lydia when he got across the, the sea and landed in Philippi. Remember that, that Paul is writing this letter to this church that he loves 
from a, a jail cell, cell of sorts. Remember, he's under Roman guard. He's under house arrest. He's in a rented home, but he's got a soldier with him 24-7. He's not free to do whatever he wants or go wherever he wants. He has somebody with him all the time. And so he writes to this church in Philippi uh, under uh, arrest, under guard, under duress. And in this letter, he is rejoicing. Paul writes to the church in Philippi about having joy and even rejoicing when struggles come. And so last week in chapter 1 of Paul's letter to the church, he encourages them and us, right? So the, what we read in the, in the Bible, these letters that the apostles wrote to the churches, a lot of the stuff that they're dealing with is the same stuff that we're dealing with. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And so we deal with the same garbage and the same junk, the same desire for joy, and yet being unable to attain it apart from the Spirit's work in our lives, just like the first century church did. And so he encourages them and us to expect joy in chapter 1, to expect joy even when trouble comes, like being put in jail for doing nothing but preaching Jesus. He then ends chapter 1 with this goal. Whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And remember, when we talk about the gospel, what is the, the gospel? We're talking about the kingdom of God that is revealed to us through Jesus of Nazareth, God's only son and our only savior. Jesus lived a life of purpose in order to restore humanity's relationship with God. Jesus paid for our sin when he died on the cross. He defeated death when he rose from the grave on the third day. God saves those who believe this good news, who repent of their sin, who choose to look more like Jesus through obedience that comes through the power of Holy Spirit. One day King Jesus will return and he will unite heaven and earth under his rule and reign. An eternal kingdom will be established with his followers. Now this gospel that we talk about, gospel of Jesus and his coming kingdom, Paul says should impact our conduct, what we do and how we live. He said that in verse 27. Paul begins chapter 2 of his letter to the church by pointing at or pointing to what he starts the letter off with. He says that those in the church would be united with God first and then be united with others, including Paul, through their faith in Jesus and the gospel. So let's jump to Philippians chapter 2, verse, uh, I think we're in verse 1. Yeah, 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, let's just stop there. This is all stuff that you get from being united with Christ, right? You come to Christ, you come uh, to him, you surrender your life to Jesus. And then in that um, relationship that you have with him, there's encouragement and there's comfort and there's sharing in the spirit. There's tenderness and compassion. I mean, this almost kind of seems like the fruit of the spirit that we read. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. It's kind of that feeling. You're connected with God through Jesus and here are some of the benefits of that. And then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. I think there's another one. Oh, no, there isn't. Being um, like-minded or being of one mind. Paul wants us to be united with others like we are with Jesus. 
In our union with Jesus, there's encouragement and comfort and love and tenderness and compassion as we share in Christ's spirit. And Paul says that joy finds completion when that union with Jesus, that union, vertical union with Jesus, is extended to the community around us. Just like we're united with Jesus through the Spirit, we should be united with each other through that same Spirit. What Paul is getting at is this, that living with others and living for others are really two different ideas. Living with others brings challenges, right? You got any kids or spouse at home? <laughs> living with others brings challenges. People are difficult. People don't always do what we uh, like or what we want them to do, and they often do the things that we don't want them to do. And then there's struggle, and, and, and we get this kind of back and forth. It's challenging because so often when we're living with others, the focus really is on ourselves. What I want my spouse or my children to do, how I want them to behave, how I think they should respond to the things that go on in their lives. I think you should be more kind. I think you should be more compassionate. I think you should do this. But most of the time when we make those statements and we struggle with living with people, it's because they're not doing what we think they ought to be doing. We're focused on ourselves, what we want. Getting along with others is, be di is difficult because they aren't us. So the answer to the question, can't we all get along? is a loud and continual no. We can't. We can't get along. Not at any point in the history of the world, regardless of the government, Democrat, autocrat, theocrat, socialist, or any other form of government you can possibly imagine, at no point in world history has everybody been able to just get along. That's why when you study history, what you find is war after war after war and trouble after trouble. And, and sometimes we look today and we think, yeah, but they aren't us and they didn't get it right and, and whatever. I don't care what your idea is. We do not get along with each other very well. It just is a matter of course. It just doesn't happen. And we can do pretty good for a while, but at some point, somebody's going to get their feathers ruffled up and it's going to be a struggle. And I think it's because we're all at least a little bit selfish. Maybe we can agree to that. We're all just a little bit selfish. Paul wants us to figure out that joy is not found at the end of the pursuit of self, but in pursuing the benefit of others, living for others. And that's what we're going to look at Next, Philippians 2, next uh, couple verses. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. If we're going to live for others through the Spirit, we've got to learn to value others more. If we're going to experience joy, if we're going to live for others through the Spirit's power at work in us, we've got to value others more. And let's face it, 
We live in a culture right now, in a place in society right now that may, become, that may come to be known um, later, maybe years later, as the cancel era. It's the idea that if somebody doesn't agree with you, politically, socially, economically, whatever, that you have um, the right, maybe even you have the obligation to cancel their voice in your life. And maybe, I, I don't know, maybe this came about from social media. Maybe, you know, you had that one person um, that you were friends with on Facebook or whatever who just posted all the time, all the time, all the time. And, and so what you did was you went in there and, and you just, you didn't unfriend them because that would be mean, right? I mean, that unfriending somebody on Facebook is pretty serious. But you can go in because Facebook is so clever. You can go in and you can unfollow people which means you don't have to see anything they have to say or anything they post anymore. In a sense, you cancel out their voice through Facebook in your life. You just don't have to see it. Out of sight, out of mind. And so we've developed this idea in our lives, both socially and in person, that if you're not going to agree with me, if you're not going to support my ideas, if you have a different idea about how the world should go or who should be president or whatever, I'm just going to stop listening to you. I don't have to put up with that stuff in my life. And we just cut people off. Now, this used to be done, I think maybe, let's say my generation. Um, if I didn't like what was on the TV, I just turned the channel. We did that. Or if we got upset because a store had a policy or was doing something that we didn't agree with, you just stopped shopping there. But we've taken that a whole nother level by, by canceling out the voices of individuals in our lives. And so if someone disagrees with you, you can simply erase them, erase their voice from your life. That act puts all the value on you, your opinions, your ideas, um, what you want to happen, and it cancels out the value of others what they think is important or, or, or their side of the story. And pretty soon, the only voices that are speaking into your life are the voices that agree with your own voice. And that does not value others more. In fact, I think that devalues others more. Because pretty soon, we get tunnel vision. All we can see is what we can see what we believe and what we think, and everybody seems to be, agree with me, and so I must be right. And it sounds like the exact opposite of Paul's instructions. I think Paul actually gives a relevant example of what valuing others looks like. It looks like looking to their interests or putting their interests above your own. Let me give you a few examples. Husbands, what would it look like in your marriage life or in your home if you considered what was best for your wife, not what you think is best for your wife, catch that, right? But what is best for your wife from her perspective? Not just what interests you, but what you think is best for her in her life and her growth and her development. Wives. What if you valued the interests of your husband, would you do anything different in your marriage? If you valued his interests and what was best for him, would your relationship look any different? What about, uh, what about at work? 
this one might get a little tricky. If you look to the interests of others instead of just your own, would you be happy when your coworker got the promotion instead of you? This is not um, coexisting. This is not tolerance. This is not acceptance. Okay, we're not talking about let's just all get along. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what God talks about in his word. This is placing value on another human being created in God's image who is every bit as worthy of his love and care and grace and blessing as you and I are. Because we're united with Jesus, we should place a higher value on others than ourselves. Now, that does not mean that we necessarily give in to their politics, we accept their sin, we join their cause. That's not what we're talking about either. It just means that in your personal life and your personal relationship, especially within the church community, that you give greater weight to them instead of yourself. What do you want? What is best for you? What would make life easier for you? Not just me. It means we treat them like we would treat Jesus in the same situation. So if we knew Jesus was going to show up on Sunday morning at real life, would our morning um, look different? Setting up and doing things and getting everything just right, would that look different than it does on any other Sunday? Valuing others above ourselves is not the only way that we live for others. Let's look at the next few verses. In your relationships with one another, okay, he's talking about community again, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, uh, by the way, we talk about that, right? It's part of our mission to look more like Jesus every day. We're to have the mindset of Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage that we just talked about, right? Valuing others more. He didn't use his relationship to God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Like that's valuing others more, right? If you're willing to go to the cross and die for somebody who doesn't even care about you or love you or want you, that's valuing others more. Therefore, because he humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the second half of our mission here again at Real Life is to look more like Jesus every day. To value others more. And then secondly, as the Spirit works in us, we're to look more like Jesus. And here, Paul is like, um, look, just copy Jesus in the way that he functioned and the way that he lived. It's a lot easier said than done, right? I get that. But Jesus didn't use his equality with God to get special treatment. That's what happens in our lives a lot, isn't it? 
Because I come, because I give, because I whatever, because I've been here longer at work or whatever, I'm going to use my position to get special treatment. I'm the boss, so I don't have to come in when everybody else comes in. I don't, you know, there's lots of things. I'm the dad, so I don't have to, I'm the mom, so I don't. We use our position all the time in a whole bunch of different ways to get special treatment. Now, Jesus could have done that, right? He could have forced humanity to do every little thing that he wanted. He's the king. He has the, the power, right? It's good to be the king. He could have made everybody do exactly what he wanted. When he was tired, he could have made one of the disciples rub his feet. And what's even more crazy is that he could have made one of the disciples rub his feet and be happy about it. Because he's sovereign, right? He's in control. He can make us think anything he wants us to. So some guy is down there rubbing his old dirty toes and going, this is the best thing in my life. Jesus could do that. When he was thirsty, he could have made one of his followers get him a glass of wine. Just like, boom, go get it. Keep him coming. When he was bored, he could have made Judas stand there and change the channel or hold the rabbit ears on the TV. Go wash his camel. I, I don't know. You get the idea, right? Jesus could have made anybody do anything because he's the king. But Jesus didn't do any of those things. Quite frankly, if I were him, I would have. Can I just be honest with you about that? I'd have milked that like, woo, yeah. Hey, I don't want to bother you, but mm, I'm going to die for you. So could you get me whatever? I think I could use that. Anyway, I'm not Jesus, so it's okay. All right. Instead, Paul tells us that Jesus took on the nature of a servant. So he valued others more than he valued himself. He humbled himself. Let me tell you what that means. When there was a toilet that was clogged, Jesus was the one who was plunging it. He showed up early and he stayed late. He had the same excuses we all have about not being willing or able or whatever to, to serve or to do things, only he didn't let those excuses stop him from serving. And the ultimate example is that Paul says is that he went to the cross and he gave his life as an example of service. He washed feet. He preached when he was tired. He stopped to heal people when he was in a hurry to get where he was going. And so give me a little grace here as I talk about something a little more personal to us at real life. Nobody wants to miss church, right? Nobody wants to not be able to come into service to, to sing and to listen to the message, mostly probably to sing. But um, nobody wants to miss church. We all want to be in here. But if everybody is in here, that means nobody is out there Nobody's taking care of kids. Nobody's working in the nursery. Nobody's helping our kids learn about Jesus on their level. That means kids would be out here with parents. That means parents would stop coming because they'd be distracted by their kids all the time. And who wants to come and be distracted when you're trying to listen and be recharged after a week of running after children and taking care of them? We just need a break, right? We need to be recharged spiritually. But, ah, oh, I just, I hate missing church. I hate missing church too. And, and I get to sit with my wife, my, my family, I get to sit in church um, maybe two or three times a year. 
for the last 22 years. And you go, yeah, but you're paid to do that. Well, um, yeah, I do get paid to, to do that. But guess what? You get a little frustrated at your job too, no matter how much you get paid. And it would be nice to enjoy church a little bit. It's a little different than maybe working another job. But let's get off, let's get off me. Um, Amber is actually in service this morning. Thank you. Good job, Amber. Now, I don't know how she did that. Thankfully, the doors lock from the outside to the kids' room. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's not, if you're watching, on, that's not true. Uh, she's got it taken, taken care of. But, um, but look, Amber gets to be in here and, and, and be in church with her family um, not, not very often, right? I mean, one time out of maybe six weeks or eight weeks or something like that, does she get to have church with with her family, because she's often covering for people in kids' church or in the nursery because people get sick or, or, or whatever, and we just simply don't have enough volunteers to cover those areas so that we can have people um, filling those spots if somebody's sick or ill, and so Amber uh, gets the responsibility of do that. You go, yeah, we go, Amber gets paid too. Yeah, she gets paid to organize that and put all the stuff together and get it ready for those people who are teaching and volunteering and helping and that kind of thing. Some of our volunteers are serving uh, every week. There, there's, there's seldom a Sunday that you come into this building that Pam isn't out at the front doors welcoming you, right? Like everybody knows Pam because she's out there every week. And thankfully, she does that happily because she loves you. But that means that she has to show up early every Sunday to help get those things ready, get that stuff, and be here to welcome you when you come in. I know that you um, love the... I must have got, I must have got to... Uh... He was like, nope, time to shut him down. Okay. I know that you love these people. I know that you um, love this church. But let me just say as a caution, we're going to burn our volunteers out if we don't have more volunteers to help. And that pretty much goes to every single thing that we do here on Sunday morning. And I could talk about a lot of, uh, of other things. I am so grateful to uh, Ray and Jeff who show up on Sunday morning and they've done that for, I don't know how long it's been guys, five or six years that you've shown up with me every Sunday morning to help set up. And, and, um, and, and, and that's crazy. But let me tell you, as, as we've grown over the last eight years here, there's more things to be done. There's more stuff to be put out. Like we haven't downsized that stuff. It's gotten um, more and it takes a lot. And just personally, I'm getting kind of like starting to feel like the disciples uh, in, the, in the book of Acts where I, I get here at seven o'clock in the morning and we start unloading and I have to now bring a change of uh, shirts and stuff because it gets hot and sweaty as we're bringing all that stuff in. Um, and there's so many things to hook up and set up and I just am going, going, going all morning long. And I feel like I'm getting to a place in my life where I'm not able to focus on what God is telling me to share with you on Sunday mornings because I'm doing all of these other things. And there's a point where there's, that's just going to break. Right? I'm not going to be able to do the thing that I can do for God and for you. I, my effectiveness in this is going to be diminished because I'm doing so many other things. 
I, I don't tell you these things to, to shame you, okay? Please don't misunderstand that. I, I tell you these things just to bring up this idea because we're talking about valuing others more and we're talking about looking more like Jesus and Jesus served even to the point of death and so I know it's no fun missing church and I know it's no fun getting up early and showing up here and doing a bunch of stuff and getting sweaty before I know I know but if we don't have people who will do those things quite literally we don't have a church because nobody's going to come, right, if there's nothing here and there's nothing for their children and, <laughs> and, the, and the preacher can't preach because doing too many. Like, do you get that? Okay, can I put that to rest now? Well, on the same page you got, okay. Um, there's something else about the way Jesus served. But it really is about what he didn't do instead of what he did do. And Paul talks about it next in verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And this may be the toughest of them all. Um, I've kind of reworded the point here because unlike valuing others more and looking more like Jesus, I see this point Paul is making really as an encouragement to look less like the world. Stop grumbling and, and arguing. Don't look like the world. Look everywhere we go, everything we're a part of, we've come to expect grumbling and arguing. The vast majority of the content on any news station is grumbling or arguing. It's the first thing we tend to do when we get home from work, right? We come in, how would your day go? Oh, let me tell you about the day I had. Or let me tell you what the kids did today. And then we argue that, they, that people aren't doing at work what we think they should be doing. We complain, we point fingers, we grumble about work, about spouse, about kids, about church about school, and even about God. You may not be aware of this, but during the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert, right? They, they, they watched God do the 10 plagues on Egypt. They see the hand of God there. They, they leave Egypt. Then the Egyptians are coming. The army is coming. They think they're going to be killed. And then God parts the, the ocean, and they walk through on dry ground, and he saves them there. They get to the other side, and there's like no water. And so God turns the bitter water sweet so that they can drink it. And he provides for them over and over again. They see the hand of God like nobody else before or after. And every single day they're led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. The presence of God is with them every single day. And yet the Bible over and over tells us that the reason, the biggest reason that they wandered for 40 years in the desert, that they had so many struggles and that God was so upset with them, was because they grumbled and they argued. They complained to Moses. They argued with Moses. Moses, the guy who touched his staff in the water and the waters parted, right? And they're like, we don't think you're the leader that God wants you to be. They grumbled about, the, 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 God, we've got meat. The, the, we don't have meat. And then we got meat. And we got too much meat. And we got this and we got that. We, we're ne they're never satisfied. They're grumbling all the time. They had seen God do so many things, and yet they continued to grumble and complain. So if we're going to be complete in our pursuit of joy, we've got to look less like the world. We've got to look more like Jesus. We've got to value others more than ourselves. 
And Paul says there's a payoff if we will do these things in verse 15. He says, look, so that you may become blameless. He says, don't, don't grumble and, and, and argue. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Certainly that would fit our generation today. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. When we let the Spirit loose in our lives, and the Spirit helps us value others and look more like Jesus and look less like the world, there is actually more space created between us and the world. There's a greater distinction between us as believers and between those in the world. And so our world today is warped and twisted. But as part of Jesus' kingdom, we can help others see the difference between what the world offers and what God offers when we surrender to Jesus, when the Spirit lives in us and the Spirit develops joy in our lives. So that even in difficult circumstances, we can be people of joy. And Paul says that, look, when you, when you value others more and when you look more like Jesus and when you look less like the world, what happens is you will shine like stars among them in the, in the sky. Do you know what happens um, out in the sky as you drive farther and farther away from the city? What happens to the stars? They get brighter and brighter, don't they? The greater the distinction between light and darkness. And so when we let the Spirit develop joy in our lives through serving others. Look, Jesus said, you want to boil it all down to two things? Every Sunday we could talk about these two things. Love God and love others. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. And to the greater extent that we do that, the greater we shine in a dark world. Now look, let's boil it kind of down to this. We, we might possibly win a few people to Jesus by living with them, right? Our, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, we might possibly win a few to Jesus by living with them, but we will win countless souls to, the king, to kingdom service by living for them. That's the difference. We can live with people all day long and they can have no idea that we're believers or we're followers of Jesus. But when we begin to live for them, they begin to see Jesus in us. And Paul says that joy in our lives then is made complete because the Spirit is working in us to love God and love others, to value them above ourselves, to look more like Jesus and less like the world. Joy isn't found at the end of a pursuit of self. It's found in pursuing the benefit of others. So, look at what you wrote down at the beginning of the message. Hopefully you listened and you paid attention. You did that. Maybe you pulled that paper out at home. If what you wrote down at the beginning is about what you want, what you need in your life to bring about joy, to be joy, I need a better uh, job, a higher paying. I, I need better friends. I need a nicer car. That thing might bring you temporary happiness, but it won't bring you lasting joy. Real joy can only be developed through the work of Holy Spirit in our lives when we value others more than self, when we look more like Jesus and less like the world. Now, in Philippians 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul talks about his own sacrifice through the Spirit for the people of Philippi. 
And he says that his sacrifice causes him to rejoice because he sees the payoff in their lives of greater faith. And he then tells us as followers, like he did the Philippian church, to be glad and to rejoice with him. To rejoice when we serve others. We rejoice with Paul when we do that because more and more people will find real life in Jesus through our service. So I want to leave you with this question this week as you ponder how to function. Like how am I going to find joy? What's all this coming down to? Who and how can you serve this week? Maybe that's a neighbor. Maybe that's a, a co-worker. Maybe that's a family member who's just struggling. Maybe that's somebody you know down the street who's sick and who needs uh, something. Maybe you, you're going to see somebody on the way to work this week on the side of the road that, that needs, a, needs a jumper cables or, or something. Who and how can you serve this week? Maybe it's staying after and, and, and helping us um, tear down and, and, and pack up. Maybe it's jumping on the, the website or seeing Melody back at the Connection Hub and saying, look, I, I'm, I, I need to serve. I, I want to serve like Jesus, so I want to get involved. Who and how can you serve this week? How can you value others more and look more like Jesus and look less like the world and let the Holy Spirit develop joy in you, this lasting joy that doesn't way when circumstances change. Let's pray. God, I thank you for loving us, and I thank you. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, and I thank you for the promise of joy in our lives when we, when we allow the Spirit to, to, to do his work in us. God, it's not easy, okay? I understand that. I get it. There's lots of things going on in our lives. We're all busy. We all got stuff to do. But help us this week to develop the same attitude and mindset as Christ. Yeah, I'm tired. Yeah, it's a struggle. But I'm going to value others more. I'm going to serve like, like Jesus. I'm going to look less like the world by watching my grumbling and my arguing. God, as we do that, you'll work in us and through us so that we do shine like stars and so that other people see your son Jesus in us and hopefully that they would give their lives to him, that they would find the same real life that we've found. Would you help us to do that? And God, I thank you for each and every person here who gives their, their time and their, their resources, their talents to help us worship, to draw us closer to you. Thank you, God, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. dry and desert land, I tell myself keep walking on, here's something up ahead, water falling like a song, an everlasting stream, your river carries me home, let it flow, let it flow, Blood for my soul, a well that never will run dry. 
I've rambled on my own, never believing I would find An everlasting stream, your river carries me home Let it flow, let it flow, open the heavens Come living water, all my fountains are in you It's strong like a river, your love is running through all my fountains